Let's go ahead and start with prayer. O Heavenly King, the Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art ever present and fill us all things, treasure your blessings and give our life. Come and abide in us and cleanse us from every impurity and save our souls a good one. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Even if you didn't grow up, I'm just kind of assessing where everyone's background is Christian-wise. If you were to be asked, how is one saved? I don't... So, how does Jesus save you? Let's give you a little bit more specific. What would have been the answer... So, like, just bracket orthodoxy out of your head. When you're growing up, or, like, when you're a kid, what does it mean that Jesus saves you? That he freed us from original sin. That he freed us from original sin. Okay. Roman Catholic, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> My understanding was he died for us and the, the work is done. We're all saved. Right. Okay. What does that mean? That we don't have to do anything. Whoa, Okay. <laughs> But I mean that that is that can be a thing that floats around there, right? Like that, that's like what my area. That's like what I learned. Okay, it's like a malformed Lutheran read of it. Yeah. And for mine, it was uh, he makes you into a new person. Uh huh. Okay, Pentecostal. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, he took the punishment for your sins. He took the punishment for your sins. On the cross. On the cross. God said thank you, so he got up again. Okay. He was perfect, he was killed, but he what shouldn't have been killed. So uh-huh. we're not perfect, we should be killed, but now we don't have to be because he got killed and there had to be some sort of exchange. Because there had to be some sort of exchange. Had to, had to level the, the, the scales. Right. A debt was owed and it needed to be paid off. Mm-hmm. Okay. And a just life was taken that shouldn't have been. Therefore, an unjust life should be spared. Reformed. Exactly. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we can already tell, like... This is, I was just like, I'm just going to ask people. And it's just mm-hmm. fascinating the answers that you get. You can tell mm-hmm. where somewhat like the, the universe of metaphors and which they're coming from, what they emphasized. Because almost everybody gets a kind of, I'll say like elevator speech or some kind of like, what is the gospel in a shortened form? Are there any others a little different than any of the ones that have been said? Yeah. For us, it was a lot about, like, you earn the relationship with God. Like, you get to have, like, once you're saved, you start that relationship. So yeah, yeah. Almost like uh, Roman's Road. Are you, are you too young for Roman's Road? I've never heard of it. She's too young for Roman's Road, isn't she? <laughs> I didn't either, because I grew up Church of Christ. And if you had asked me what we said, we would have said something like, Jesus Christ died for our sins. That's, that's what we would have said also. Which then is, what does that mean? <laughs> I know, so when I was later a teen, I'm like, what does that mean? So, I'm not necessarily, we don't have enough time to unpack all of these things. Uh, but what I do want to, so, there's an aspect of truth in every single answer. I'm not saying, therefore, nothing matters. What I'm saying is, Christ frees us from original sin, right? Like, he gives us life he brings us into the new adam the second adam right he gives us a relationship so that we can say our father right it's even in the liturgy he took our sins he died because of our sins uh there was i don't know about the the just there needed to be justice recompensed in this kind of like honor system thing uh because that's when we're getting into later metaphors that I'm not familiar in the New Testament. I'm open to being corrected about that. I just, I'm not familiar with that. And it doesn't really come up anywhere in Orthodox hymnody. All of some aspect of some of these things, you become a new person, right? Behold the new, and this is just Paul. All of these are aspects of Paul or the Gospels or the way the Old Testament even talks about these things. Um, the question is things like, what is propitiation? What, it, like, what do these words mean? And, and I, I don't want to get too far into the weeds, partly because, as you can tell, this 
hits in all sorts of different directions. But it also, you can tell uh, how a whole, I'll say system, of salvation is worked out if you have these root metaphors and you stick with these, this is what it means to be saved. Uh, one thing I'm surprised I didn't hear is something that Frederica focuses on the chapter. Did everybody get a chance to read the chapter? I thought it, it was pretty well done. I, whenever someone who's not a scholar starts getting into 12th century stuff, like about Anselm, I'm always a little cautious because I'd had enough grad school in me to know that unless I'm skeptical of trying to get too far into something that I just know I'm out of my depth, right? So love Frederica. I don't know if she's a little bit out of her depth because I'm not an expert on Anselm. And honestly, I don't think any of us really need to be an expert at Anselm, whether or not genealogically this is where this idea comes from. Personally, I don't really care. <laughs> it could be true, okay? So I'm not going to die on like everything is Anselm's fault or everything's Augustine's fault because you can hear this in orthodoxy. Uh, I think there's aspects of this, but this is like saying uh, one scholar talked about the debate between Roman Catholicism and Reformation was basically a debate about Augustinianism. Right? Like, how do you read Augustine? Is it, if I remember, do you remember the quote that I'm talking about from Yaroslav Pelikan, who, who was a Lutheran who became Orthodox later in life? Um, he basically said, I believe it was like the Roman Catholic idea of the church, the sacramental system, that is what frees you from original sin, right? Helps you break from that and give you new life, uh, versus Augustinian, basically, like, idea of sin and sacraments. Uh, sorry, sin and ecclesiology that's then tied from that, that's more of an invisible church thing. So Protestant, right? Lutheran, uh, basic idea, which is kind of closer to what you were saying, which is kind of a juridical model that is you are guilty, you owe something, there's a debt, see, banking, legal terms, and Jesus comes in and pays that off, uh, or he frees you from it, um, and therefore, to even go to where you were saying, Max, in a way, I don't think Lutherans would actually say this, but he's done everything, <coughs> and now it's done. <coughs> and you don't have to add anything to it because it's all sealed. Yeah, I'm, I'm not even saying that's wrong. It's like so the, a former Lutheran is telling me that is what Lutherans say. So, good. Well, okay. I guess I did hear that recently. What were you saying, Max? I don't, I don't know what I, what I think yet. So it's like, that is what I thought. No, no, I just, that's what you, yeah. around, right, at the time. So, let me ask, was there any questions about what Frederica put out there? Would you consider it like a spiritual law? And at least for men, because that's what I understand in my life, that that fire that she talks about, if you if you deal with hardship without expression and you just pass through it without, you know, complaining or mm -hmm. anything else, that, that fire turns you into a new person. So we're not called to be Stoics, right? It's not expressionlessness or, uh, I mean, if you read the Psalms, uh, that's a lot of complaining going on in the Psalms. <laughs> uh, the Psalms, though, uh, there's complaining where you are lamenting, where you are crying out to God, which is not just complaining that's just kind of like, this sucks, like, you know, like teenagers. And some of us sometimes, right? Like, I don't want to do this. Like, that's that kind of complaining, or woe is me, and then just being thrown over because something bad is happening, period. Uh, it's not about stone-facing and, and working through it. But it is about salvation that is worked out through suffering. Let's just be honest. Suffering is going to happen no matter what. You're either going to have God or you're not going to have God. Like either Christ means something to you or Christ doesn't mean something to you. You're going to suffer. You're going to trip over and break your arm. Somebody's going to hurt you, etc. Right? So the question is, what do you do with that suffering? How do you make that suffering holy? How does that suffering give you an opportunity to lean into Christ and God and lean on him? This is the epistle reading uh, I didn't touch on today, but Paul, like, uh, given revelation, and in my weakness, God gave me a thorn in the flesh, and in my weakness, he says, my grace is sufficient, my grace is what you need to actually be strong. And do you get that grace by handling it like that? Like, every time I encounter suffering, should I handle it like that? So you, you handle it through prayer, through uh, not, uh, say, not grumbling, but... 
there's some aspect of being able to articulate and saying, like, cry out to God saying, I'm suffering. That's fine. Uh, so this is interesting that you're going to suffering because all a lot of this with salvation, it's we have a lot that has been trained into us. And it's true that it's like what God has done for us. But then there's an aspect, and I think orthodoxy is strong on this in a way that sometimes uh, certain forms of Christianity, salvation is just something that God does for you and gets applied to you. But then you're kind of left with like, but then what do I do? Which goes back to, you don't do anything. You just accept and you're thankful that God has done this work of salvation for you. Because if you were to add anything to it, it's works righteousness, right? Mm -hmm. That's one way of talking about it. Is uh, <clears throat> one uh, metaphor that the, or one, one uh, the, the story that a lot of Protestants go to is the, the story of Peter stepping on water and going to, and stepping out of the boat uh -huh. and Christ having walk on water uh -huh. and how the like through our sufferings we uh, we orient ourselves towards Christ he, his grace brings us through the suffering yeah. and then uh, if we he, if we have our eyes focused on our suffering oriented towards that then we don't looking at the water to, instead yeah, of at Christ you get to sink. Is, that, is that a good metaphor for what we're yeah I mean scriptures are replete with all sorts of these images metaphors etc uh, to help us orient ourselves. Basically, it, all of this is to orient us towards God. So what what I want to do, let's just start with this and then work from here. I want us to actually look at the anaphora of St. Basil the Great. As I have tried in the past trying to think about this, uh, there are in the past, I would say, 20 or 30 years, partly when Orthodox uh, became more aware of what was going on in, uh, I'll say, Western Christianity because of immigration, etc. Uh, there was a reaction within Orthodoxy because uh, the typical way of articulating salvation made them go, I've never heard it said exactly like that. So I'll give you a rendition that would make an Orthodox go, wait a second. So we're talking about the debt. There's a debt that's owed. Uh, man can't pay it off, right? Uh, and because of that, and God, maybe I should start off. God is holy. Man is a sinner. God's mad because of the sin. This justice needs to be dealt with. This goes to kind of what you were talking about with some different words. Uh, and therefore, Jesus came and suffered the consequences. And he also took the wrath of God the Father on him uh, in order to be able to restart things for us, basically. Has anyone read where God the Father was mad at us and needed to take his anger out on the Son? Like that, in that language? It's sort of in the chapter, I mean, maybe not that precise language, but it is. I mean, it's no, is talking about it, but it's not like, in the New Testament and Old Testament, where this language, and I get it, because metaphors can kind of get out of control on us. There is, if you get in Ephesians, there's the idea that God's wrath, or Romans 1, there's God's wrath, right? Like, he punishes. I was just reading Ezekiel this morning, partly looking for the particular text I knew in Ezekiel that I was going to use in the sermon, and I went through a chapter like, oh, there's God's wrath. God's punishing, right? Uh, and then Isaiah 53, where... That's the main one, I think. Right, they, they focus on Isaiah 53. But that way I just articulated it is not actually said in that way in those passages, and so what, I, what the challenge is in inter interpretation is kind of some presuppositions. Orthodox hear some of these things that just go like, we just don't talk like that in the liturgy, our hymnody, the fathers don't really talk like that. And what you really, I want to, the main thing that I want to get at is, and I'm going to use $30 words here, Orthodox have an ontological <coughs> approach to salvation that is person-based <coughs> versus what is typical in kind of Western Christianity and I think particular strands of Protestantism and Catholicism. I'm being particular here because Orthodox have made a big stink about this. Sometimes I think they've overstated the case uh, because they'll say things like, I don't believe in substitutionary atonement. I'm like, well, I don't know how you can't believe in substitutionary atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement, which is what I was just describing, that's one thing. But Christ did die in our stead. Christ did suffer the consequence of sin, like the debt. He paid. I mean, we're going to look at this. He, he freed us. It might need us to think about these things a little bit differently. Uh, 
But when you're looking at a juridical model that's in the West, I need to stick with my where my hands are going, in the West, <laughs> right? Which is the focus is on, I broke a rule, God's mad. God not only needs that to be fixed, but he also, his that, that like justice, that thing that went wrong has to be fixed and atoned for. Uh, which in the East is more, uh, and this is, there's parts of this in the West too, uh, that is an ontological, that it's about the repair of the relationship. Uh, so it kind of goes, you can see how these metaphors can go whee, and get really hard to get your mind around them. Uh, so I want us to stick with, I'm using the anaphora of St. Basil the Great to guide because I was trying to think, okay, and if we're trying to think of salvation, we can do hop around the scriptures or we can just go to the Anaphora of St. Basil, which is not what we do on a typical Sunday. This is especially uh, on the eve of uh, Christmas and Theophany, but then also the Sundays throughout Lent. Uh, and when we read through this, uh, two things I want, like, one is just what Basil think is, thinks is going on and what God has done in salvation history for us. Two is also the actual element that we participate in the action of what this is, right? It's not just talking about something. When you participate in the liturgy of St. Basil the Great, you are participating in the broken body and spilt blood of our Lord. So there is a participatory communal, I would say ontological element where you are actually being drawn into the life of God, which is the holistic, actually uh, uh, sacramental way in which we are drawn into God's life. It's not, so let's just go through this and as I, as I hit things, uh, it'll bring up things to talk about. For those that don't use ontological in their everyday vocabulary. Ontological means uh, like what is real when we're talking about things, uh, existence. So juridical, Ontological would be like, I'm trying to get, I'm going to sit down for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Ontological, if we're talking about metaphysics, metaphysics is trying to describe what is. Ontology is saying what is. Uh, so juridical would be something that is secondary to what something is. So God is just, holy, etc., but he is who he is in himself just like you and I are humans, like essence, nature's human nature, etc. Does that make sense? Okay. As we go through this, maybe instead of ontological, how about relationship, communion? Yeah. We can understand that better, right? Like the what you get typically uh, out there is someone's broken a rule, somebody needs to fix the rule, and then everything's okay. And typically, especially depending probably on family life and our experiences, that can be upset dad or mom uh, that then gets put into that uh, versus a God who is always searching for us, always loving us, uh, even if he allows us to suffer the consequences of our sins, which is, I think, what Romans 1 is all talking about, right? Like you have this, the, the wrath of God is revealed but it's revealed because he gives us over to our sins. He says, you're going to go that direction. You're going to go the idolatry route. I will let you experience idolatry. You're going to literally know it in your flesh what the consequence of this is. You can think of Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man in his flesh. This is the reason why at the beginning he's luxurious. He's living large. He ends up in the flame. Lazarus is the opposite. Soars right and then he ends up in paradise because of the trajectory of their life and what they were doing let's say with their suffering with their attention to god uh the rich man was not paying attention so god gave him over to it and so there's a chasm fixed here because god honors and respects our freedom and says if you're going to go this route so let us go ahead and jump into the anaphora of saint Basil the great and let's start with the second paragraph yeah it's probably not part of the scope of what we're going to talk about here, but I was wondering um, what caused that difference, I guess, in approach between the East and the West. I know that's a very yeah, long no, no, no. answer. So what I think, 
Is it linguistics or is it? Some of it I think is cultural. So this is going to be me speaking as a non-specialist. So don't hold me to this. But this is my <laughs> this is my from reading, etc. Roman culture in general uh, had a little bit more of a legal mind, legal. I want to say legalistic because then that gets us in another <laughs> world of uh, Protestant uh, lingo and baggage, right? But they were uh, legal-minded. Things were about, how about we see honor code, like honor society. We don't really have, we do still honor and shame stuff, but in that world, it was much different. Rome grabbed on to certain things, and Augustine, and if you read Tertullian, and some of the Latin fathers, they got they grabbed on to certain metaphors and ways of explaining things. This happens all the time. You have all this New Testament literature and Old Testament literature, and you got to boil it down and explain it to people, <laughs> like what we're doing right now. <laughs> and there's a lot, so you got to be like, I've got to grab onto these things because Paul's got so many metaphors going on, right? So what happens is certain of those strands got grabbed onto and made to like this is the way of explaining things, and the Greek fathers tended. It's not that they didn't use some of those that language. They just tended to have a few. Uh, their first principles were a little bit different. Uh, so I'll, I, I so give you. They're, they're explaining things in a way that the respective populaces could have understood. In other words. Yeah, I think so. But they what happened? Related to it. Yes, okay. and I think also what happened is over time, like we didn't, they didn't mean to, but then these things metastasize and they take on a life of their own, and then all of a sudden it's out of control and. You got to bring it back. Well, it becomes dogma at some point, right? Right. Well, if it doesn't become dogma, then it at least affects the basic metaphors of how you approach things. So, so for example, there's a lot of folks who will be very critical of Calvinism in Scotland because it's just burned out everything uh, religiously. I mean, I know there will be Calvinists who would argue with me about this uh, because, at least on some popular level, I mean, what are we talking? <laughs> when you say Puritan, what do you mean? What is the common parlance for Puritan? If I was to say you're Puritanical, what am I saying? Prude. You're a prude. Okay, so there's that. Or Victorian, right? Prudish. The obsessive gnawing fear that someone somewhere might just be happy. <laughs> or, or having fun. But, I mean, we're all familiar with this. Like, if you're, like, even if you're not religious, that we have this idea that Puritan is this kind of like rule-based... Uh, obsessed with like particularities, they might be pious. We talked about this, joked about this last time, like the frozen chosen, right? Because like they they're they're right, right? What? Okay. <laughs> so, uh, what you get when you get into these metaphors? I, I want to focus on this instead of like because you could go into a catechism class, orthodoxy, and they just say Augustine is the worst thing since sliced. Slice bread's awesome. Wait, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> taxation. <laughs> like, you know, taxa okay, there you go. Taxation. It says we got off the gold standard. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't really actually think that. I don't care. <laughs> I'm not I'm under monetary policy. Uh, Augustine is awesome. He's one of the fathers of the church. There might be certain aspects of him that over time developed and got problematic uh, because people develop it over time. Like double predestination, uh, you could, I think you could argue that's in Augustine, but I don't know where Augustine actually says that. Uh, that's later, right? So some of these things, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just say thank God and just don't worry about it. Okay? <laughs> yes? How do you know if something is a metaphor in Scripture? Because it's well, as opposed to like literal. Yeah. Well, that that is such a big question that we'd have to sit down and, and from text to text talk about it. This is why we have the tradition of the church, is we look at and we are shaped by the liturgy, the works of the fathers, what has been handed on to us, the spirit that resides within the church itself that tells us like, whoa, like, uh, he, he didn't mean poke your eye out or cut off your hand, right? Uh, Okay, stop it. Because <laughs> there's examples of this in church history where people went too far, and the church would say, "Like, hey, hold on a second. Uh, for example, like marriage is fine. Uh, I get it. Like, you would say, like, you maybe this is not what it should be, uh, or that it's like not spiritual, quote unquote. But like Scripture says, the marriage bed is undefiled. Then you had hard ascetics out there saying, like, everyone needs to be celibate, and the church says, like, 
hold on a second. You can be celibate and we can have married folks here. Right? So there's extremes and the church says, whoa, that's not the mind of Christ. Slow down. Okay? Let's jump in or we're going to run out of time and I have to take my kids to something else like immediately after this. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's start in the second paragraph. We know the beginning, right? It's a Trinitarian where we are being lifted up into heaven. Uh, but let's start with uh, the second paragraph. O existing one, master and Lord, O God, the almighty and adorable father. It is truly proper and right and befitting the majesty of your holiness to praise you, to hymn you, to bless you, to worship you, to give thanks to you, to glorify you, the only God who truly exists, and to offer you this our rational worship with a contrite heart and a spirit of humility. For you have granted us the knowledge of your truth. Who can relate your mighty acts or make all your praises known? Who can tell of all your miracles at all times? A master of all, Lord of heaven and earth, and of all creation, both visible and invisible, you sit upon the throne of glory and behold the depths. I'm going to stop right there. Orthodox uh, prayers, especially for uh, sacraments, uh, so the Eucharist, uh, baptism, consecration of things, uh, you will always have this uh, address to uh, God. Who is this prayer directed to, by the way? The Father. So the anaphoras are always directed to the Father. Did anyone think it was to Jesus? That's just an interesting thing. This is also something maybe that you might... I wasn't used to this, of actually speaking directly to one person of the Trinity and not just God or just Jesus. But we have prayers to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Why would we be... Why would this be addressing God the Father? Why not Jesus? Because you're about to offer Jesus. Because you're about to offer Jesus, Right? This is, we. who are we praying in? Who are we adopted into? Jesus. <laughs> right? So, we go back to why can we say the Our Father? This is why the Our Father comes after all of this, actually, because we have stepped into uh, the throne room, and now we have, because we have access through the Son, we can say the Our Father, right? This is addressing, because the, the Son reconciles us to the Father. So we are talking uh, through Christ because of his, uh, think of the book of Hebrews, right? His priestly ministry to God the Father. So we are able to call on him to, uh, especially this focus on granting us knowledge of your truth, right? We're worshiping, we return to worship because we've been actually shown truth. The Father is one of the major things they have, and this is coming from uh, Paul and the apostles, of course, is there's a focus on the fact that God gave us knowledge of who God is, right? He freed us from idolatry. Uh, All of these aspects that we're going to be talking about are all part of what we need. uh, I'll call it a mosaic or a quilt of salvation. There's all these different metaphors, all these different ways of talking that are necessary for us to understand what it is when we talk about salvation. If there is, uh, in certain circles, this idea that uh, the gospel message is X, orthodoxy will typically say, yeah, we might tinker with that a little bit, and then we're going to say, here's the rest of the bouquet of flowers. You're looking at one flower, let's look at all of the different ways in which God has saved us, right? Like, he's given us knowledge of who God is. He's given us truth. We can then look in history, right? We know of all the mighty acts, especially that he's done for Israel and for the miracles that he's done. And he sits uh, in heaven. Let's continue. You are without beginning, invisible, incomprehensible, indescribable, and immutable. You are the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the great God and Savior, our hope. He is the image of your goodness, the seal of your equal likeness. In himself he is expressing you, the Father. He is the living Word, the true God, the eternal wisdom, the life, the sanctification, the power, the true light. Through him was revealed the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, the gift of sonship, the pledge of future inheritance, the first fruits of eternal blessing, the life-creating power, the fountain of sanctification. So, (laughs) look at all these commas, right? All of these aspects are things that have to do with our salvation. Uh, He's going to go into salvation history here in a moment. But he's talking about God the Father. This is who you are. 
you sit upon the throne. You are uh, without beginning, invisible, incomprehensible. Then you have Jesus Christ, who is the image, who is our hope. And in him, and here we go, living word, the true God, right? Because we have to make sure that we're remembering that he is true God of true God. Uh, the wisdom, the life, the sanctification, the power of the true light. And then, not we don't just stop there. Then we go to salvation is revealed in the Holy Spirit. Because what does the Spirit do? So you can see how this is all mirroring each other, right? What is the Spirit? We go back to truth, the gift of sonship, because the Holy Spirit is given to us to bring us into the family. Right? This is all Paul's language. Jesus comes so that we could become adopted into God's family. Right? Uh, we then have the pledge of future inheritance. If you were to go through the, uh, this anaphora and just go through Paul's epistles, you'd be like, this is the beginning of Colossians and the beginning of Ephesians. This is Romans. and Right? This is just a huge collage of apostolic teaching uh, condensed and just put commas next to it, right? So, uh, we need the Holy Spirit because the pledge of heaven, uh, he, the first fruits of eternal blessing, the, the power that gives us life, and the way that we are sanctified. Because our salvation is not just knowledge, it's not just a transaction that's happened outside of us. This is one of the aspects of the juridical model, is that God does something to you, but orthodoxy says the fathers talk about God does something to you. He does something for you, and he does something to you. Uh, I would also encourage, if you're wondering about salvation in the Orthodox Church, to look at the baptismal rite. I would have loved to have gone through the whole baptismal rite, but I can give you a PDF. It's just too long. We would go over time, okay? But this is exactly the different moments where we say, like, you are justified, you are illumined, you have been baptized, right? Like, we use all of these metaphors because you have been given light, in Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come to dwell and has given you the beginning. The seed has been planted in you in baptism for the Holy Spirit and you to work together to be able to bear the fruit that you need to bear by being in Jesus Christ. Right? This, What happens with the juridical model too sometimes, and I don't know if you guys have experienced this. I experienced this. We focus a lot on Paul when I was growing up. And you get to the Gospels, you're like, I don't know what to do with some of these passages because it just does like parables, especially where hot, like because parables, most of the parables are about internal spiritual growth. But if you have a model, it's like God has done something to you. And now you don't really know what to do after that. There's no sanctification really to pursue because if sanctification can get wrapped up in works, righteousness or something like that, uh, that is not the mind of the church. The mind of the church is Jesus Christ has died on the cross. He has set the example. He has died uh, in your stead. Uh, he has done all of these things to then uh, initiate you into relationship with the Father, to free you from the effects of death, because he's gone through death and been faithful, and the Holy Spirit, God, raised him from the dead. So, again, we're going to, it gets really, <laughs> let's just keep with this, because I'm just getting ahead of myself is what I'm really doing. Through him, every creature of reason and understanding is empowered, worshiping you and sending up to you the eternal hymn of glory, for all things are subject to you. You are praised by angels, archangels, thrones, dominions, principalities, authorities, powers, the many-eyed cherubim. Around you stand the seraphim, one with six wings, the other with six wings. With two they cover their faces, with two they cover their feet, with two they fly, crying one to another with unceasing voices, and ever-resounding praises, singing the triumphant hymn, shouting, proclaiming, and saying... And then you have the song to the Holy, 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 Lord of Sabaoth. The priest continues. With these blessed powers of loving master, we sinners also cry aloud and say, You are holy, most holy, and there are no bounds to the majesty of your holiness. You are holy in all your works for the righteousness and true judgment. You have ordered all things for us. When you created man by taking dust from the earth and honoring him with your own image of God, you set him in a paradise of delight, promising him eternal life, and the enjoyment of eternal blessings and the observance of your commandments. But when man disobeyed you, the true God who had created him, and was misled by the deception of the serpent, he became subject to death through his own transgressions. In your righteous judgment, O God, you expelled him from paradise into this world, returning him to the earth from which he was taken, yet providing for him the salvation of regeneration in your Christ himself. For you, O good one, did not desert forever your creature whom you made, 
nor did you forget the work of your hands, but through the tender compassion of your mercy, you visited him in various ways. You sent prophets. You performed mighty works by your saints, who in every generation were, were well-pleasing to you. You spoke to us by the mouth of your servants, the prophets. You can tell this is all Old Testament. This is a way of kind of condensing the Old Testament story down, right? You uh, gave us over to the death that we chose. But you didn't forsake us, right? When the way the fathers read, when Adam and Eve are uh, put on garments of skin, right? When they get clothed to leave, uh, that is God taking care of them and allowing them the chance of repentance, uh, it is not just uh, get out of my sight, I can't stand you, but it's saying uh, I'm now going to give you time uh, to be able to repair what has happened. What, so part of what is in the background of this, in the East generally, when I say East, so like St. Irenaeus is in France, but uh, he talks like this too. There is this idea that we have that uh, Adam and Eve are like full-grown adults who were given a rule, right? Don't eat of this. And they broke it, and therefore they're sent out of the garden because they broke the rule, right? And almost sounds kind of capricious, this kind of like, why? This is just a random weird rule. Why did... Has anyone ever thought that before? Like, why did God set up? It's like a trap. <laughs> <laughs> We don't parent like that. <laughs> Unless it's like, don't touch that thing because it's going to burn you, right? Don't, like, I, I, so the way that the, the Greek fathers will talk about this is that Adam and Eve are kids. They were not grown up, and they were being given the time to actually mature to be able to make the decisions that they needed to make. And what happened is they made some bad decisions, and they got burnt. And God, because of respect of their freedom, said, okay... Uh, he knew this was going to happen, uh, right, from before everything. We already knew that Jesus was coming. Uh, so he allows them, he gives them, he prepares them, and as we've, he's going to constantly be with them, right? We have what happens right after Adam and Eve uh, are sent out of the garden? What's the next story? Garments of skin. So there's garments? Cain and Abel, right? What is the problem with Cain and Abel? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. So God's still around, right? It's not that God has just said, get out of here. There's still a relationship, and he's still, he's obviously communicated something because there's a problem with Cain's sacrifice. The way that St. Ephraim the Syrian talks about it is that uh, Cain basically uh, sacrificed to himself instead of to God, really. He didn't actually want to love and come into communion with God. So we could talk about sacrifice it's a very different idea than what we typically think in regards to sacrifice. You can see that God pursues and tries in every way to visit, to make himself present, to guide. You spoke to us by the mouth of your servants, the prophets who foretold to us the salvation which was to come. You gave us the law as a help. You appointed angels as guardians. And when the fullness of time had come, you spoke to us by your son himself, for whom you also made the ages, he being the radiance of your glory and the image of your person, upholding all things by the power word of his power, thought it not robbery to be equal to you, the God and Father. He was God before the ages, yet appeared on earth and lived among men. Being incarnate from a holy virgin, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being conformed to the body of our lowliness, that he might conform us to the image of his glory." For since through a man sin entered the world, and through sin death, so it pleased your only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of you, the God and Father, born of woman, the holy Theotokos and ever-Virgin Mary, born under the law to condemn sin in his own flesh, so that those who are dead in Adam might be made alive in himself, your Christ. I think probably one of the most uh, fruitful ways to think about the main way that Orthodox think about this is first Adam, second Adam, which is like the main, one of the main currents of Paul's thought. First Adam is obviously Adam, right? We died in Adam. Uh, the way that Orthodox will talk about that, it does not mean that we are guilty of Adam's sin, of like what Adam committed, but we received the transmission, the inheritance of the consequences, right? 
we were all born outside of paradise. We were born into a, a world that went, this is Romans 8, right? Like everything was subjected to futility because of sin. So we're introduced into this. Uh, I think the, the, the metaphor of like uh, infection, like we all were born infected, right? If you think of Psalm 51, right? Uh, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not just... The, the problem with the juridical thing is, is it's kind of thin, just like you broke a rule. Instead of like, no, there's damage and chaos has come into the system and relationships need to be repaired. And the only way to do that uh, is for God himself to come into that chaos. That's where we're going, right? Like he had to be born in our condition. He had to fulfill the law. He had to live a sinless life. Uh in order to restore us back to the system. He had to burn out the infection and allow us via the Holy Spirit to burn out that infection in us too. I think when we look at like the evil that's in the world today, that explanation of more of like this disease or infection that has permeated everything makes just so much more sense than the result of someone breaking a rule. So I'll use another metaphor to, to help. Uh, the way that a lot of the fathers will talk about this is God is what's really real. And then basically the further you move away from God, things descend into the chaos and less real. Mm -hmm. So the fathers will say evil is not real. Mm -hmm. It's real. It just doesn't have reality. Mm -hmm. That evil itself is actually a parasite on what's good. Mm -hmm. This is East and West. Augustine says this, Gregory, Basil, blah, 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 et cetera, right? Dionysius. Uh, the, the, that way of describing things, it, it opens up and it sees how we're all affected by it, right? The chaos is all nipping at us. Uh, it's not just that we broke a rule. We can use that language, but it's a, a fuller way to talk about it is that we liked idols. We like things that aren't real. So we feed ourselves on things that aren't real. And we end up really unhealthy. <laughs> we make the infection worse. The chaos gets worse. We are further away from God. And when we remove ourselves from God, we end up in the flame like the rich man. Right? Yes? Um, the phrase, thought it not robbery to be equal to you. Uh -huh. I don't understand what that means. That's Philippians 2. What it means is that he did, he counted it of... Though he was God, he still emptied himself and became a man. <coughs> it's a kind of King James <coughs> way of talking about it. He didn't think he was taking something that wasn't like his, but he was God, and he, uh, even though he was God, he still descended and became man. I agree with you. Uh, for a long time, I thought it not proper to be equal to but you is God, right? Yeah, the Father. Yep. I mean, all of these are just basically quotes from the New Testament. <laughs> just put together, right? And I, what I love about this, and part of the reason I've started turning to this, is because you get to see all of these images and metaphors <coughs> right next to each other and given in salvation history, but also like what God, who God is, what God has done, what he had to do because of the fall uh, and then now what we're starting to get to now what he's doing to remedy it sending his son where did I get to he lived in this world and gave us commandments of salvation releasing us from the delusions of idolatry there he get, brought us to the knowledge of you the true God and father he obtained us for himself to be a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, what he originally wanted for us. Having cleansed us in water and sanctified us with the Holy Spirit, he gave himself as a ransom to death, in which we were held captive, sold under sin. Descending through the cross into Hades, that he might fill all things with himself, he destroyed the torments of death. And rising on the third day, he made a path for all flesh to the resurrection from the dead, since it was not possible for the author of life to, over, to be overcome by corruption. So, this is where it starts getting a little muddier, I think, for folks, where we start introducing 
things here. Uh, I do find it fascinating how Basil has, instead of it's just straight, like this is what Jesus does, he's also introduced into their baptism. <laughs> In the middle of talking about what Christ has done, he's introduced to what, what Christ has done for us, right? Like he taught us, he made us a people, he released us from idolatry, uh, and he, he sprinkled us with water. Ezekiel, what I, what I just used it from the prophet, right? Like, he's cleansed us, he sanctified us. Uh, what do you think it means that he gave himself as a ransom to death? Like, in order for us all to receive the spirit, he died. Like right. The ransom. Right. What does it mean that he gave himself a ransom to death? Death held us captive. Yes. And so. So think of the image. What did Frederica do? I see light, a light bulb going off. How does, for, I forget, it's something like a police officer going in and saving kids, and then they keep him and they torture him, right? I thought that was helpful. The way I thought about it is like, what it is, because the fathers, a lot of them talk about that Christ was uh, the divine hook. Like you, when you're fishing and you're tricking somebody, that Christ was deceitful, that Satan kind of knew who he was, but didn't really understand what was going on. Angels didn't really understand what was going on, right? And so a lot of the fathers will talk about that uh, Christ came and he, and this actually shows up in Holy Week. Like another place that we could go is to spend a lot of time in Holy Week uh, because all of these metaphors, everything is going in full blast during Holy Week. Uh, Christ is the hook that. This is in Gregor of Nyssa. Do you see this? Christ is the hook that the the serpent, that the devil, swallows. And in Holy Week, we talk about how Christ bursts out of his belly. <laughs> Satan thinks he's got him. Like, I've killed you. And, sa and Christ says, you don't actually know who I am, right? I'm God. You thought I was just a prophet or somebody that, uh, that God sent. But I'm actually God in the flesh. I can't die, Right? So what happens, the ransom is uh, not Jesus paying, uh, it, it's like he goes in to a jail cell, to kind of use Frederica's, uh, and he actually has the key to get us out. He's the ransom. He goes in, he frees us, and then he says, you guys can't keep me here. I'm walking out of here, right? So the ransom, Gregory the Theologian is like, who's this ransom to? You'll get in certain Protestant forms like Christ had to pay God the Father. But that, that, that's not in Scripture. That's not actually. It's not that God the Father had a bill that needed to be filled out. It's that Jesus went and freed us from. He was the ransom himself to death, and then he destroyed death. He didn't actually pay anybody. <laughs> he just kind of went in and said, it's, it's done. Because it, he blew the, the doors off the hinges is the way that we talk about it. You can see it in the icon of the resurrection, right? What has Christ done? Satan is bound and he's at the bottom of the icon. And uh, Jesus, the rescuer, has come in and he's got Adam and Eve and he's pulling them out of the graves. So it's a great rescue operation. Uh, and it's a victorious thing. It's not just we've got to figure out this divine math about how to make sure that the scales of justice have been completed like work that's not the metaphors that's not the way that the the church talks about it he has to why does he have to go into hades what does basil say to fill all things with himself this isn't just basil right paul talks like this god will be all in all so god goes into shale goes into hades where we are held captive to go back to that and he frees us he brings God's life, like in the Psalms, right? Where, when the Psalm, where am I going to go to flee from your presence? I can't even go to Hades to get away from you because you're there. So this is where we come back to God as fire and the way that the fathers will talk about, uh, the Greek fathers especially will talk about this experience of God as fire. We have this also from scripture, right? God is consuming fire. Uh, if we're living with the fire of the Holy Spirit, we're not going to get burnt, because we've burned away all the stuff that needs to be burned away, right? Like, we are actually living the uh, spirit-filled life. That doesn't mean that we're burning away our flesh, as in, like, body, <coughs> right? 
this means that our life is in full conformity to what we are supposed to be. So when we are talking about God as a consuming fire, the reality of it is, what is the rich man in? He's in a flame, right? Is that a physical flame that he is being burnt by? It is the presence of God. The fathers talk about basically the experience of hell. The experience is actually God's presence because God is not somewhere. We have this like kind of almost like too physical idea. Like we have like hell is somewhere down there or something. And heaven is somewhere up over there yonder. Right? Yonder over the rolling <laughs> Some of you know that song. Uh, that's that's not uh, heaven's not up there and hell's down there. This right now, you either live in the kingdom and are working towards living in the kingdom by God's grace, or you are slowly but surely hardening, becoming. Ugh. You ever read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis? Mm. Yeah. He didn't just cook this up on his own. This is the basic great tradition of Christianity. Most of us just got little pieces of it here and there, and it doesn't really make sense until you put it all back together. So what you get, uh, we experience the consuming fire as glorious, as the light, as what we want to burn away our impurities so that we can be cleansed, right? So it's all about our desire. Do we love God or do we love our idols and the, and the, the, cre- the created order more than He's right. What was Eve's temptation? It looked good to eat, right? And what did she want to become? Like God. So orthodoxy says the way out of that, through the other tree of the second Adam, is sacrifice, is death to ourselves, so that we say, you're God, I'm not God. And the fruit that we're going to bear is going to come because he is, everything is rightly ordered. Even Adam and Eve flipped creation and put the material order and worshipped it as uh, not as a creature, right? We are supposed to go the opposite direction. We're supposed to worship the cre- the creator and treat the created order in the way that we're supposed to treat it. Sorry, I'm I'm going a little bit further, but I'm trying to give you a full picture of what. Yeah. So Hades isn't a, like a separation. From God necessarily? Those who experience it, experience it as the presence and separation from God. Because God is always present. Right? Where is Jonah going to go? Is he really, are, you, are we really going to run away from the presence of God? The separation is something that we have created. That God says, you've created that. I can't destroy, I can't go inside of you and force you to let go of those things. You want to do such and such? Okay. I will give you over, is the language of Romans 1. Thy will be known. Which is the opposite, yeah. right? Yeah. Yes. So is Hades just like another word for hell? <laughs> <laughs> no. Hades was a holding place, and now uh, it has been demolished, because we sing about how all have been freed from Hades. But uh, there's going to be, in the end, there is heaven and hell. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because Christ came and he obliterated the holding place. Because now it's all, now everything is going to flow in the direction that it's supposed to go. That's why you can have Adam and Eve being pulled out. I'm sorry, can you go a little yeah. more into <laughs> <laughs> no Hades than heaven and hell? I will hit that next week because we're about to run out of time. Uh, so let's. So he became the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, the firstborn of the dead, that he himself might truly be the first in all things. Ascending into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and he will come to render to each man according to his works. As memorials of his saving passion, he has left us these things which we have set forth according to his command. He's talking about uh, the bread and the wine. For when he was about to go forth to his voluntary, ever memorable, and life-creating death on the night which he gave himself up, and then we move into... Uh, the night uh, in which he sanctified, put aside, established uh, the Eucharist, which is our participation in his broken body and spilt blood. And it is our participation, if you heard right before uh, the consecration, one of the prayers I do is, 
that your Holy Spirit will fall upon us and upon these gifts here offered, right? So it's not just a transaction that happens somewhere else that then gets applied to us, right? It's this constant, there is the sacraments, which is how God works on us and for us when we allow him into us and work with him within us. This is something I try with talking about the Holy Spirit because there's a lot of confusion about the Holy Spirit, uh, that the Holy Spirit actually does dwell within you. Go back and read Romans 8. Like the Holy Spirit is what is going to, uh, it's what resurrected our Lord. If you look at Romans 1, the Holy Spirit is also what is operating to actually bring life into your body via his son, right? Not the spirit son, but the father's son via the son, okay? So this participation is uh, the healing of the rift that has occurred. God has done everything that he possibly can. He's, we, we are not beholden to our sin. That's such that we're, uh, the, the destiny is we're dead and that's that, and then we're just stuck. He has opened the path back to relationship with God, that we can have life, eternal life, uh, that sin doesn't have to dominate us and our bodies. Now, the path that is given to us is always the path of the cross because that is the path back, right? The tree. We have to eat from the tree in the way and the time in which we are supposed to actually eat from it, which means discernment of being able to know how to die to ourselves. So, salvation <laughs> hits on everything, right? This is one of those chapters where you have to kind of reset the whole thing because we get little ideas here and there. Uh, and so coming and trying to wrap our minds around uh, maybe for some of us a, a little bit of a different way of thinking. Now, because there's so much of this, I'm sure I know that she hits this again in a later chapter, so we're going to come back around and talk about some aspects of this. Or might you have a, a question or something that is starting to go around in your head. Yes? And uh, where are the podcasts? I miss like two. The podcasts are on the... Uh, there is uh, St. Anne's Catechumen class, I think is just what it is. Okay. It's easy just to search Spotify. It's the right. fastest way to find it. Well, thank you. If, if you have Apple, whatever, most podcasts, I try to put it out to most, and then there's like 50 million of them, and I just said, okay, the four that I know. <laughs> Any other questions? I know that we just so hit a lot of stuff. At the beginning, you asked us, how would you say you're saved by Jesus? Now you can ask me. Now I'm going to ask you, how would Orthodoxy say? <laughs> Don't do it, no. <laughs> <laughs> Your elevator speech. Yes, I guess My elevator, elevator speech? Jesus out. Christ came to give us knowledge and the path of how we can live like God and the way that we're supposed to live in this world. I'm trying, like, so part of it is trying to actually capture the cosmic, relational, uh, and not just this, you don't messed up, and I know how I can release you of your guilt. Mm-hmm. That's part of it. But that... That is not like your internal like anxiety about where you, whether you're going to heaven or hell is not. Uh, that's not the question that Paul is asking. He's asking a whole lot bigger questions. That's there. It's implied to all of this, but once you get a bigger setting, to me, it releases. It just gives you a mu- more tools, <laughs> better ways to think about things than just oops, I messed up. Now I feel guilt because I messed up. I'm supposed to not mess up. But Jesus died for me, so I'm okay. But I still, I don't know what to do because I still feel the weight of what I just did. That's why I have sacramentalized. That's why I have repentance is always there. Confession. Uh, penance is also something that's a tie to this. Cool. Yes, one so last question we're going to end. Salvation is a process and not like a one-time thing. Right. So this is one. There's a, a pamphlet that Metropolitan Inclusus Ware, a blessed memory, put out at one time when somebody asks, like, uh, "Are you saved?" to an Orthodox Christian, and the Orthodox response is, "I'm saved. I'm being saved, and I pray to God that I will be saved." That there's, there's this process that is uh, a humility. It doesn't mean that you don't have some uh, assurance because you know that God is the lover of mankind. But you're also not going to presume, because once you start presuming, I'm one of the 144,000. <laughs> <laughs> to go a different direction. Uh, well then, I've seen what that does too. You give yourself a, 
I can do whatever I want. All right, that's probably enough. <laughs> <laughs> Let's end with prayer. Lord, now let us thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. From my eyes have seen the salvation which thou hast prepared before the face of all people. Light to enlighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.